Hey, Rock and Roll Bedheads, you're about to hear a spin-off pod of sorts on this feed that will show up from time to time called Albums That Changed My Life. And it's me talking to you about some of my favorite records ever. So, huh, no reason to prolong the intro. Here's the, uh, the first shot of this. Hope you enjoy. Years ago, I had this realization that I am very bad at remembering things sometimes. Specifically, what movies I've seen and what books I've read. Not like if you brought up something, like a book or a movie, I would know that I'd seen it. But if you asked me, hey, what movies have you seen this year? Like in the moment, I'd freeze, right? So I realized I had this tool. I had this phone, which has an app called the Notepad. I could take notes. So I started writing down books I read movies I watched, TV shows I liked, all that sort of stuff, right, in lists. And then I realized that as much as I talk about music, both for a living on this podcast, both just when I'm out and about hanging out with people, whenever I can shove it into any sort of conversation, uh, when people had asked me about my favorite records, I wouldn't necessarily be able to tell them very succinctly. Oh, yeah, I love, here's my top five favorite records or whatever, right? So... I started keeping a list on my phone a few years ago, which I I first put as top 15 to 20 favorite albums. No, top 10 to 15 fave albums is what the note is called. But at this point, it has way more than 15 albums on it. And the, the criteria for this is only when I think of an album that I love to listen to front to back, I put it on this list, right? Because there's not actually that many of those. And it's created sort of this interesting uh, examination for me, too, on the fact that sometimes my favorite artists and my favorite albums don't match, right? There can be an artist who I don't love everything, but they have one album I absolutely love. And there can be an artist where I love a big portion of everything they've done, but I don't have one album that I would just keep on repeat all day. And so, you know... It's been sort of an interesting learning experience about my taste. And then I can go back and see what I put down. And part of what made me do this is years ago on another podcast that I had, I had a guest on, a friend who was in the radio business with me. And she and I talked about our favorite records. And we did try to make a list of like our top 10 favorite records. And she came... I went back and looked at that list recently, like in the last couple of years, and saw that my albums that I put down were like, they were good, but they were also sort of lip service. Like I had Sgt. Peppers on that list, right? Like everybody likes Sgt. Peppers. You don't need to put it on your list of favorite albums, right? Just don't do it. Um, I had Graceland on that list, which I do love. I really do love Paul Simon's Graceland, but it doesn't uniquely tell a story about me, right? So here's what I thought about doing as sort of a spin-off side series that we'll do when we have time for production, I'm just going to create this venue in which I can talk about some of my favorite records. Spin tracks, let you hear it. Listen, some of this stuff you're going to like, some of it you might not like, but what's so fun about talking about your favorite records is your favorite records have stories, personal stories, and that's what's so interesting, and I think it's what drives musicians, right, in a lot of ways. A lot of artists... They know that they're creating something for themselves, but when it leaves the speakers, it becomes something for someone else too, and sometimes in a totally different way. So to kick this off, 
I'm literally opening this list. I'm going to spin through it, and wherever my finger lands, that's going to be the album that we talk about. And that means, here we go. Tonight, we're talking about you 2 All That You Can't Leave Behind. is a blue shoots up through the stony ground there's no room no space to rent in this town you're out of luck and the reason that you had to care the traffic is stuck and you're not moving anywhere you thought you found a friend Take you out of this place Someone you can lend a hand In return for grace It's a beautiful day Sky falls, you feel It's a beautiful day Man, talk about iconic video moments. The being on the runway and the plane taking off above them in this video, so Badass man. So I was uh, just months from turning 18 when this record came out. I was in my senior year of high school, and I remember, I remember that hearing that song, and it must have just been on pop radio. I was in a small town in Arkansas at the time, going to high school, and so it wasn't like we had an alt rock station or anything like that. Um, and and I'm trying to think when I bought the record eventually, um, but man. That song, that was that was the song, right? That everybody was excited about. It actually preceded the album as the first single, and then they dropped the record. And I mean, it was I, I don't think I was aware of this at the time, but looking back historically, this comes after U2 has sort of been in a valley, right? They take this dip after Octung Baby and they, they do pop, and people just aren't very receptive. They were originally gonna call pop U two thousand. Right, so U two, get it with zeros. U two thousand, and then they went with pop, and and they had. There's this backstory on pop where they had planned the tour, and then they were like, okay, so before we go on tour, we got to write an album and produce an album. But they'd like planned this all the way out, and so the sessions and and the creative process took longer than they were hoping, and so they basically had to rush. Is is what I'm saying? They rushed pop. And had to get it out so they could go on tour. So they decided for this they were not going to do that. But they kept the working title. It was going to be called U2000 um, up until a certain point. And uh, man, so this record is like their return. So they were, it's their return in a lot of ways. Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno are producing. And so, you know, that's, uh, those are the guys who did some of the landmark stuff from the 80s. And there's even this story about how on some of the songs, one of the songs in particular, it might be Beautiful Day, that Edge was messing with a guitar tone and they were like, no, 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 that sounds like old U2. And he was like, well, yeah. And so they like had this fight over like whether or not to use that guitar tone and I think he ended up winning out. So uh, I love Beautiful Day, but I heard, I mean, Beautiful Day is is the song off this record, right? I mean, this is also still in the period where you had 
albums that were really led by singles and there were hits on records, right? It doesn't feel like that's really a thing anymore. There's just hits, but there's not like hits on records. You're not like, oh, that's the these are the three singles off this record, um, especially with rock and roll. But here it was. So that song has has gotten a lot of play. Another song that was a big song off this record is track two, which, you know, it's hard for me to say what my favorite song on this record is, but I really do love Stuck in a Moment You Can't Get Out Of. And I've got to say, I also really love how it's used in Sing 2. Um, if you have not seen Sing 2, which you probably haven't, I I had a delightful time. And Bono voices a character and sings Stuck in a Moment You Can't Get Out Of with Scarlett Johansson in this movie. And sure, you can dislike any of those words I just said, but if you have a soul, you're not going to dislike it uh, when you watch the movie, at least the scene where they sing it together. In fact, instead of playing the U2 version of this uh, from that record, I'm actually I'm gonna play the I'm gonna play the Scarlett Johansson and Bono duet version uh, because, dude, it's dope. Nothing you can throw at me that I haven't already heard. I'm just trying to find a decent melody, a song that I can sing in my own company. I never thought you were a fool, but darling, look at you. Gotta stand up straight There's a story that in the recording of this record at some point or during that time, uh, Bono had a bag stolen like out of his car that had lyrics in it and a laptop. And so they like somehow got the word out that this had been stolen and they got it back. A guy had paid like not a lot of money for it from someone and he thought it was totally legit. And then he opened up the computer and it had pictures of Bono's kid and he recognized it. He was like, that's Bono's kid. I think I have Bono's computer. Can you imagine? Man. Uh, third song on this record, of course, is another one of the the quote-unquote hits. It's, you know, it's fine. It's a rocker. U2 rockers are not my favorite. I like the U2 songs with the big hooks, like Stuck in a Moment. And the rockers are okay. And it's Elevation.
Like I said, I have a soft spot for the ballads and the big hooks, and track four is Walk On. This is another one that had a big presence outside of the larger record, uh, and it sort of got co-opted for 9-11. See, that's sort of the weird thing about this record that hangs over it, is it comes out at the end of 2000, about 11 months, 11, 10 and a half months before the 9-11 attacks. But because there's so much airplane imagery in the album art and in the the lead video, it sort of becomes co-opted a little bit uh, by 9-11. And this is the song that really is co-opted the most. They perform it for like a celebration of America's uh, thing at some point. And that performance of Walk On gets nominated for uh, a Grammy. But that's actually a song written about a... Uh, a woman from Burma who was a democratic uh, activist and had been placed under house arrest in Burma. And they were on a bill to be honored together with her, I think in Ireland and she couldn't come because she was under house arrest. And they wrote this song about her. And then because of that, it wasn't, they couldn't release it in Burma. Like the (laughs) the album got banned. Uh, So interesting backstory. That is not the one I think most people know when they think about political implications of this record. Um, But man, Walk On is an absolutely gorgeous gut punch of a song. And if the darkness is to And if the daylight feels like it's a long way And if your glass heart should cry For a second you turn back Oh no, be So when I finally really got my hands on this record, I knew all these songs. The first four were songs that had been out, and people were talking about them, and they were in the popular culture. But when you get to track five, and you're still captivated, that's when you know you might be onto something, right? Especially when you get an album that's heavy on the hits, and you've heard those first three or four songs a lot. You get to track five, that's the real litmus test. And I just the first time I heard this song, Kite, I was like, oh, this is never leaving rotation, right? Like, And Kite's an interesting thing, right? It's another one of those songs with the big hook, which I love. And the vocal performance that Bono turns out here is sort of mind-blowing, just even by Bono standards. But the backstory is even more amazing, which is in the late 90s, Bono was having trouble with his voice. And what becomes Kite actually comes out of sessions they do in 98 
Um, it's not the whole band. I think it's just Bono and the Edge and maybe Daniel Lanois. And there's snippets of things they're playing with. And at some point, he decides to try to sing this hook. And he's he, his voice comes back. And so... This is sort of a return to form for Bono, and it's the, like I love songs that have multiple hooks, and this song has like three hooks in it, and it's just oh, it's, it is one of my all-time favorites. So the record comes out in 99, or I'm sorry, in 2000, when I'm in high school, but I really get into this record later, and I, I'm trying to remember why I get into this record five years later, but it's it's the year 2005 when I really embrace the full album, and it, be, it sort of gets into the pantheon, my personal pantheon. I specifically remember listening to this record while driving uh, on my honeymoon, because I got married in 2005. And so I do have these these recollections of driving across the Midwest while listening to this album, and of course, um, fond memories. Um, but I also, another thing we haven't talked about with U2 is that U2 is the blueprint for modern evangelical church music. It, you, they, This started early in their career because when Boy and War and those records were coming out, the Christian music scene was happening as its own standalone entity as well, like pop music, guys like Michael W. Smith and women like Amy Grant. And so because of the sort of spiritual longing that was always there with Bono and his lyrics and the big anthemic choruses with sort of these lyrics of, hey, this could be a love song about a person or it could be a love song about God, like all that sort of stuff really lent uh, you two to the church. And so... The church for years openly embraced U2 and U2's music. And I remember doing mashups of songs when I was in youth group where we would do half a U2 song and half a quasi-hymn, like Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus and With or Without You together, right? So um, there, there is this sort of like very comfortable feeling about a lot of these U2 songs because they do feel like the music that that I heard on Sundays growing up. But now that I've distanced myself from a lot of that, I still just, I can feel that energy, uh, that that longing that I think was co-opted by the church, but the longing that was actually there and continues to be there in most music that really attempts to search something. Um, and it's incredibly gratifying. And so the next track on this record is, uh, it's, a, it's a nice pop song. Um, it's called Wild Honey. Swarm of bees 
I said it's a fun pop song. Uh, it, the band was not sure they wanted to put it on the album. There was a lot of debate because they thought it was a little bit too frivolous. Brian Eno apparently loved it because he thought it sounded like Van Morrison. Um, but the edge at some point refers to it as U2's Oblady Oblada, which I kind of hear, but I also love Oblady Oblada. That was a song that I sang to my kids a lot when I was uh, putting them in the crib as infants. So, uh, you know, maybe that's why I like it. But Wild Honey, a huge pop song, great for, you know, windows down driving in the spring and summer. Um, and then you get into this, again, we talk about the spirituality surrounding you two. Track eight is another one of these borrowing the parlance of, of church and seeking and spirituality. And, and again, remember, this comes out at the end of 2000, but it is still on the radio and prevalent. This, I mean, sort of the, the, this cycle of you two and the hits, the, the first four songs, when 9-11 happens. And so songs like Peace on Earth become a little more poignant to the uh, the overall audience. Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Peace on earth. Tell the ones who hear no sound whose sons are living in the ground. Peace on earth. No, who's the wise? No one cries like a mother cries. For peace on earth She never got to say goodbye To see the color in his eyes Now he's in the dirt Next song on the record is When I Look at the World Which, fun fact, never been played live by you 2 And there's a practical reason That When I Look at the World Has never been played live by you 2 uh, Edge doesn't remember how he got the guitar sound. So he comes in after Larry and Adam put this song together, and then he throws these snippets of guitar on it, and then he forgets what he did. this guitar tone that you hear a little bit on the Smashing Pumpkins Machina record that comes out like around this time uh, which I think is a really interesting thing that you've got the edge doing that and then he can't remember uh, what to do um, so I, the next song on the on the record is is called New York and again it's another reason that this album becomes associated a little bit with 
the 9-11 attacks, even though it happens before the 9-11 attacks. It, there's just this very weird premonition aspect of this album with the airplanes and the song titles and the the themes. Um, but New York was, Bono has said, was sort of this tribute to take a little bit of Lou Reed and a little bit of Frank Sinatra and incorporate them. In New York, freedom looks like too many choices. In New York, I found a friend to drown out the other voices. Voices on a cell phone, voices from home. Voices of the hard cell, voices down a stairwell in New York. Just got a place in New York. I don't know if I really hear the Frank Sinatra aspect of this song, but I definitely hear the Lou Reed aspect of New York. Uh, and then U2 brings this masterpiece to a close with a song that, surprise, surprise, once again, really sounds biblical. Uh, it is a song called Grace. You two will do this throughout their entire career. They still do this. The songs are sort of churchy. And the anthemic stadium-filling noise they're able to make uh, with that rising guitar and that thudding of 4-4 bass, uh, it, man, it takes you to church. I got an opportunity to see you two finally with a close friend of mine a few years ago, it was pre-COVID, um, but it was a stadium show. And we both wanted to go, and we, we weren't entirely sure if we wanted to spend the money, et cetera, et cetera, and what's a stadium experience going to be like, you know. So we went back and forth, and then we decided a few weeks before the show to just buy cheap tickets, just to say we went. And so I think we spent 65 bucks a piece on these tickets, and they were literally as they weren't like in the sky deck of this stadium, but they were all the way in the last row before you get to the sky deck in the very, very, very back. So about as far away from the stage as you can be. And it was still phenomenal. And what made it phenomenal is that you two came out in the first, I think, 20 minutes and they just played. And so it was outdoors, obviously, and it was in the summer. And so it was still light when they came on stage around like probably 830 and they just played as a rock band on a small square stage in the middle of this football field. And it was like you took them out of a club and you put them... I mean, there wasn't a ton of lighting because it was, wasn't was dark yet. All that stuff comes later. The huge production, you know. But in the first few moments, they came out and they did a bunch of the early 80s hits just right there as a rock band. And it was... It was just, it was unbelievable to see something so big and bombastic as you two be so sort of restrained and dwarfed by the surroundings they were in, in terms of size, and still compete with their noise. So, uh, phenomenal band, phenomenal record. This is the last track on All That You Can't Leave Behind. takes the blame She covers the shame Removes the stain It could be her name 
also thought that changed the world. And when she walks on the street, you can hear the streams. Grace finds goodness. this album means something to you, I'd love to hear your thoughts. We are the story guys at gmail.com is a way to get in touch with us. The show is a product of Story Guys Productions. Make sure to check out everything else we're doing at wearethestoryguys.com. And the show is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Brian Eichenberger. Until next time, turn up those albums and keep telling stories. <laughs>